Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to read verse 4 to 25. Uh, Moses, the great prophet of the people of God, uh, wrote these words. It was a great sermon that he gave to God's people. Um, but he was writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so these words, even still today, centuries and centuries later, come to us with authority, the same kind of authority as if God were speaking to us today. So with the circumspe- uh, circumspection and the sanctity that is um, due, something like that, let's hear together the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to begin in verse 4. <clears throat> hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and when you are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God. You shall fear him. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. And when your son asks you in time, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules of the Lord that our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us land, the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us as we are careful to do this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, last week we started a, a series called Culture Making. Uh, and, it, and if you weren't here, I, I'd commend that sermon to you. It, it's about God's call on all of our lives, all of your lives, to be cultivators, to, to make culture, to take dominion of this world that God has designed, to, to, to shape the culture that is around you. So oftentimes I hear Christians talking about culture as if it's something they have no control of. You know, the culture, it's out there, it's coming to get us. The culture, it's so bad. And we, we forget that, that we ourselves are called to be cultivators, are, are called to be culture makers. And the kind of culture that we want to talk about today, and we're going to be having this conversation over the next few weeks, but the kind of culture that I want to talk about today is, is the culture that we're forming, the culture that we're shaping, the culture that we are cultivating in our own homes. It's actually the kind of culture that you have the most control over. And it's the kind of culture that will have the greatest impact on your life. So this is a very important conversation. You know, Kirk Johnston sent me this little quote this week. It says, the most important work you will ever do will be within the walls of your home. Now, your home, <laughs> what is that? That varies at Christ's covenant. You know, we don't have like one kind of person here. We've got empty nesters, married and single, We've got folks in middle age with a bunch of kids and pets running around. We've got single folks. Um, we've got married, no kids. We've got college students. So there's, there's all kinds of homes. Even if you are, uh, you know, I see some, some children here. There's the Atkins kids. I, you know, you, you, you could be in a home as a child of a home. And, and, and still there's a call of cultivation on your life. So, so what home is, it, it means a lot of different things. But I think for, for all of us, this, this means something. And there's this call of cultivation that exists. So three main points, and we see this in the text. And I, and I want you to get all of this. There's a lot in this text. But I really want you to, to I'm going to try my best to, to give it to you today. And there's three things, three ideas here. Number one, knowing God's covenantal love Number two, practicing God's ways. And then number three, telling God's story. So let's look at knowing God's covenantal love. As I mentioned before, the book of Deuteronomy, if, you, if you've never studied it, it's really just a big sermon. It's a big, long sermon that Moses preached at the end of his life. In fact, the, the name Deuteronomos, it, it means the second giving of the law. The, uh, Moses is basically saying, God has given us the law. I've led you out of the land of Egypt. God has given us this law, but I'm about to die. I'm, my time with you is almost up. And so don't forget this. Don't, don't, don't forget this. Bind these things to your heart. And, and really what this sermon is all about is about what it means to be the covenant people of God. And what does that word covenant mean? It's an old word, but the, 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 the kind of definition I like to give of it is it's a loving promise. God is basically saying, I've made a loving promise with you, and, and namely your, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are my people, and you're going to be my people. 
And this relationship, it's not based on some exchange of goods, right? So covenant is the kind of relationship that a husband and wife have, right? It's not, it's not, it's not a bargain. It's not, it's not a trade kind of relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. You know, Paige is my wife because she's my wife. I've covenanted with her. You know, John Kellis is my son because he's my son. We don't have a marketplace relationship. It's not built on an exchange of goods. You know, if he misses a throw in baseball and another kid makes the throw, I'm not taking that kid home. No, John Kellis is my son. He's the one that I've covenanted with, right? And so that's this idea of covenant. And it's exactly what God has done with the people of Israel. This is from uh, chapter seven, but I think it really, this is the next chapter, but it really explains this idea. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy 7, 7. He says, it's not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest. In fact, it's not because you were the best people. You were actually the worst. (laughs) You were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. You know, this is Abraham, this is Isaac, this is Jacob. That he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, the Lord has set his affection on you. And I just want you to hear this. If you're a Christian, if you've responded to the gospel, if the good news that God loves you in Jesus and has forgiven your sin on the cross and in the hope and in the resurrection of Jesus, you have hope of eternal life. If that good news has penetrated your heart and you've believed that, do you know what that means? That means that God himself, by his voice, is calling out to you and he's saying, I love love you. It's not because you're righteous it's not because you've done some great deed. It's not because you've you know, amassed some you know, perfect church attendance or whatever. No, God in his kindness, by the power of his gospel, has called out to you and called you to be one of his covenant people. He's made a covenant with you by, by the blood of his son, Jesus. How powerful is that? And what this text is really all about is about what it means then to live as God's covenant people. And, and there's three things. So this is kind of a sub-point of point number one here. So we, we understand what it means to be the covenant people of God. It, you have to understand God's authority. You have to trust in God's goodness. And you have to obey God's law. So, so let's look at understanding God's authority. Look at the beginning of the text. Now we're back in um, Deuteronomy 6 here, if you flipped over to chapter 7. Look at verse 5. Or rather, look at verse 4, Sorry. This is interesting the way it begins here. It says, the Lord, our God, the Lord, this is the personal name of God here, the yod heh vav this is Yahweh, so it's translated. The Lord is one. Now that's an interesting way to begin. <laughs> the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And when I was in high school, uh, you know, I, there would be, I actually went back to my hometown yesterday and I was thinking a lot about high school and, you know, there was these, there was these folks in high school that would move from group to group to group. You know what I'm talking about? Like one year they'd be an athlete and then the next year they'd be like a skater. We had a big skater scene in my high school, complete with hacky sacks. And there was like a whole like culture and kind of garb that went with that. 
And so, you know, they'd be a skater, you know, one year. And then, you know, they'd kind of get tired of that. And the next year they would hang out with the pot smokers. And then, you know, the next year they would hang out with the smart kids, you know, and, and they'd kind of move around from, from group to group to group. And, and, and you'd watch this and, you, you know, y'all know what I'm talking about. You would say, well, actually, I, I live that, you know. And, you know, we, we can critique that and we can kind of snark at that. But, but actually, we, we're, still, we're still in one sense doing that. There's this impulse within us to attach ourselves to something. And when we attach ourselves to that something, it gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a sense of importance. It gives us a sense of purpose in life. And so, you know, even as adults, you know, <laughs> I know that I'm important because I work for this company, right? You know, I know that I'm smart because I went to this school, or I know that I'm accepted because I'm friends with that guy, you know, <laughs> and everybody likes him, right? And, and so we, we, we still do this. And, and, and again, it's easy to critique, but I want you to hear this. We, we do this, we attach ourselves to something to find identity and to find purpose and to find security. We do this because we were actually made to do this. You were made to do that. That's why you're all doing it. <laughs> but the thing is, you were, you were made to attach yourself to God and in him find identity and in him find security and in him find purpose. You know, Blaise Pascal famously said there's, there's this God-shaped vacuum in each of our hearts. The, the only place that you can really find long-lasting identity, the only place you can really find long-lasting security, the only place that you can really find long-lasting purpose is when you rightly attach yourself to God, who's the, who's the one who has all authority. If you want to understand what it means to be the covenant people of God, it starts like this. You have to understand that God has authority. But what sin has done is it's so distorted our understanding of God's authority. You know, in the beginning of time, the man and the woman understood this. They lived in communion with God. They, they trusted God. They obeyed God. But when the serpent came into the garden, this is Genesis 3, what did he say? What was the first thing he said? You remember? He said, did God really say that you should not eat of the fruit? Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Does he really have authority? Is he really good? And from that time to this, there, there's been this nagging doubt of the authority of God and the goodness of God and the law of God. To be the covenant people of God, it means that we recognize God's authority. It means we trust his goodness. It means we obey his law. But, but we begin here with his authority. God has authority. <laughs> he has ultimate authority. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, there's only one God. There's only one place you go for identity, for purpose, for security. You know, Moses was writing this in an age of polytheism. And here's how polytheism worked. Everybody had a God for different things, right? So there was, if you wanted to reproduce, right? There was a God of fertility, right? If you wanted your crops to do well, there was a God for that. If you, you know, if you wanted the weather to be a certain way or you wanted, you know, storms not to come upon you, there was a God for that. There was a God for every little thing. I find this security over here and this resource over here and I pray to this God for this and to that God for that. Now we, again, we're modern people. We look down on polytheistic cultures but you know what? That impulse actually is not too far from us, right? What God is saying here is, I don't, you, I don't want you to go to Jesus 
for spiritual nourishment, but go to your work for your sense of importance (laughs) and go to your wealth (laughs) for your sense of security (laughs) and go to your relationships for your sense of self-actualization, right? No, God's saying the Lord is one. The Lord your God is one. I'm not just your spiritual high on the weekend. I'm one. (laughs) I'm everything. I'm every part of your life. I have authority in every aspect of your life. I don't want your divided attention. I want your undivided attention. I want your whole life. So look at verse five. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, right? Are you getting the point here? Undivided devotion to the God who has all authority. You know, look down with me at verse 14. This is very interesting. God says, you shall not go after other gods, right? I don't want you to have a bunch of gods. (laughs) The gods of the people around you, right? So Israel was living amongst people and they had all these different gods. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, they were always tempted to chase after these gods. God says, don't go after them. Go after the gods of people around you. And then this is interesting. Verse 15 says, the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Now, people have really struggled with this. The Lord is jealous for your attention. The Lord is jealous for your affection. You know, there's a very famous interview that was done with Oprah years ago, Oprah Winfrey. And she said, I was in church one time and the preacher was preaching on this text. And he said, God is jealous. And Oprah was like, God is jealous, you know? And, and she says that that's the reason, that's the thing, that, that sermon, that idea, the jealousy of God is the thing that made her leave Christianity. She was bothered that God would be jealous. But, but don't you see that the jealousy of God is God's desire for covenantal faithfulness. He is saying, I've given myself to you. You are my people. I want you to give yourself to me. I want us to have a covenant with one another and to be faithful to this covenant. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. You know, it's interesting. I read another article recently that was an interview with Oprah and she was talking about her relationship with her longtime boyfriend, Stedman. He proposed to her, this is interesting, he proposed to her in 1992. They've never married. And she said, this was just a couple of years ago that she gave this interview. She says, I wanted to be asked. I wanted him to ask me to marry him. I wanted to know how he felt that I was worthy of being his missus. But I didn't want the sacrifices, the compromises, the day in and day out commitment required to make a marriage work, Right? Now, that's very telling. I wanted him to be faithful to me, but of course, I didn't want to have to be faithful to him. I didn't want to have to make any sacrifices for this relationship. I didn't want to have to, you know, stretch myself or or do the things that you have to do to have an actual covenantal relationship. So, I mean, it's no wonder that Deuteronomy 6 would bother her so much. It's no wonder that she would be so turned off by God's same call of covenantal faithfulness. He's a jealous God. And that's the only way that a real covenant, a real meaningful covenant, a real lasting relationship can be made. 
but he is a good God. And that's the second part of understanding the covenant is we trust God's goodness. If God is saying here, I've brought you out of slavery. You know, there was a time in this time in the world, there, there wasn't different kinds of nations. You know, we live in this geopolitical age where there's some strong nations and some weak nations. In this time, there were strong peoples and then there was weak peoples who were the slaves of the strong peoples. That's how it was. That you were either one of the strong nations warring with other strong nations or you were one of the weak nations and you were enslaved. And what God is saying here, the, the, the amazing thing about what happened in the history of Israel is God is saying, you were a weak nation you were enslaved in Egypt and I made you strong. I brought you into land. I gave you cities. I gave you cisterns. I gave you these vineyards. Look at verse 10 again. It says, the Lord brings you into this land that he swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And here's how the land, now you come back to the land and how did you find it? It's improved <laughs> with good cities that you did not build, houses full of things that you did not fill, cisterns that you didn't dig, vineyards that you did not plant. And when you eat and when you were full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who's made you a strong people, who's brought you out of the house of slavery. God is reminding the people of his goodness. I brought you out of slavery. He's reminding the people of his good plans that he has for them. I'm, I'm leading you to this good promised land. And even though they were in a wilderness, part of what it meant to be a part of the covenant people of God was continuing to trust in the goodness of God. That's a good word for us. We trust in the goodness of this God who's called out to us, who's covenanted with us. And then finally, obedience. All throughout this passage, it's a call to obey God, to trust his way. And I, and I would say more about this point, but it's really covered in our next two points. So I, I wanna spend a little time on these next two big points, practicing God's ways and telling God's story. So let's look at practicing God's way. The law of God, I want you to hear this, you know, and there's so much we could say here. There, there's massive topics that this text brings up, but the law of God, what is the law of God? <laughs> the law of God is all about love. I want you to hear this. The law of God is all about cultivating a relationship of love between our heart and God. That's, that's what the law is. God wants us to love him. God wants us to love him, to desire him. And love, real love, requires formation. Real love requires cultivation. Your loves, I want you to know, the things that you love, they didn't just happen. They, they in some degree, to some degree, they, they were cultivated. I think that we think that love is just happening subconsciously, but it's not. It's being formed. It's being cultivated. Love, in a sense, is being formed by a sense of liturgy. And I'm using that word to talk about rhythm or pattern in our life. There's different liturgies in our life that lead us to what we love. There's different habits in our lives that lead us to what we love. And these liturgies or these habits can create very strong loves. Let me give you a quick example. I, got, I had to go to this dinner last night and I got home and I went to go say goodnight to my boys. They're nine and seven. And you know what the first thing Rainer said to me? He said, Dylan Cardwell hit a three to end the Auburn-Georgia basketball game. A seven-year-old, okay? And I won't talk about the game to keep peace in our church, but... 
He was so excited about this game. And then John Kellis, my other son, they, all they could talk about was this game. They had this deep love for Auburn basketball. Well, I'm just going to tell you that. That's been formed, right? That, that didn't just happen. There's a liturgy in our home. There's habits in our home that's created a love in their little hearts. And, and this is happening all the time. We have this in our culture all the time. You know, when I was a kid, every day at school, we would say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, every game, when I was, you know, in Little League, every game they would play the national anthem over the little loudspeaker there at Fernbell Park. And, you know, still to this day, when I hear the national anthem, there's this sense of, like, pride in being an American. Now, again, that's, there's more to that. You know, there's more to the story than just because I heard the national anthem. But the, the point is, is there was habits there was a liturgy that was existing in my life that's, that's created the things that I love, that's created the things that I identify with. You know, we live in a world where you know, I have parents come up to me and say, why do these kids want to be entertained all the time as they're like giving a YouTube channel on their iPhone to their child, you know? It's like, well, don't you see, we're, we're forming something here. We're, we're cultivating something here. Or, you know, people will say, why do so many people push against the culture that they were raised in? Again, don't you see that's even being formed? This, this, this kind of coming of age and, and pushing against the, my past. I mean, we see it in every Disney movie. You ever seen a Disney movie, right? It's always about breaking a mold, whether it's, a, you know, an ice queen letting her ice powers go or a mermaid that wants to be human. There's this underlying message that to be authentic... You have to break free from the oppressive structures of your youth. The point I'm trying to make here is formation, cultivation. It's happening all the time. And it's not just with your kids. It's happening with you too. You know, if you say, why, why do I care about money so much? Why do I like hunger for material things <laughs> so much? Why don't I think about who I am as someone who's in covenant with God that often. It's because you're being formed. You're a part of a culture that loves money, that loves material things. You're a part of a culture that celebrates individualism. Your mind and your heart is being shaped all the time. And so, and so what we have to do as we think about cultivating godliness, covenantal godliness in our homes, is we have to think about, and I'm going to use this word, counterformation. <laughs> counterformation. There's formation happening. What is the intentional counterformation that is happening in your home that's creating a different form, a different love. You know, we've called this spiritual disciplines, and we'll talk about this as spiritual disciplines. I prefer the, the word habits of grace. Like, what are the habits of grace in your life? Or also like God-focused liturgies of life, right? What are the patterns of your life? What are the God-focused liturgies of your life that, that shape what you love? And again, these are the rhythms of your calendar. These are the rhythms of your workday. These are the rhythms of your home. I mean, an example is what you're doing right now. Something as simple as just saying, we are going to go to church every week. You know, that's one of the simplest little things that you can do, but it's a counterformation, right? You're saying, I'm gonna stop and worship the Lord. I'm not just gonna worship myself like the individualistic world around me wants to do. I'm gonna recognize the authority of God. 
I just want to challenge you. If this is not a regular rhythm in your life, this is one of the most foundational formations of your life if you want to understand yourself as a, someone who's a citizen of the kingdom of God. It could be giving, right? I mean, you know how hard it is to give, to be generous, to break free. You're, you're counterforming yourself. You know, the world says, take this money and be important because rich people are important. Take this money and be comfortable because when you buy fun things for yourself, that makes you comfortable. But when you give for others, when you give to the poor, when you give to someone else, it's counterformational. It, it, creates, it creates this new love. It actually creates a love for others. It creates an interest where your treasure is your heart will be. Go on a mission trip with your family every year or friends if you're single. You wanna, you wanna love the things of God? You wanna see what God is doing all over the world? You wanna be grateful in many cases for what you have? Go serve someone in a different context. These are part of the counterformations that really shape what we love. Praying before a meal. Again, it's a liturgy. It's very simple, but it creates a sense of gratitude. Praying before you go uh, to bed at night, just stopping to thank the Lord for a day that he's given you. Having a daily Bible study with your family. Um, again, it creates a liturgy. It creates a habit. It creates a counterformation. You know, and, and, and some of y'all are single and say, well, yeah, this family worship stuff, I know that's for families and I'll do that someday. But no, no. You know, when I was in seminary, I was single. I lived in a house with nine guys. You know, some of y'all have heard me talk about this. We had nine guys. We had a pet duck, a pet goose, and a dog. Okay. All in the same house. And uh, Barrett Fisher, who's one of our pastors, lived with me there. And it was a precious time of life. I was single. But every Sunday night, those, these, us, the roommates, we would get together and we would pray for one another. It created uh, intimacy in our home. It created this spiritual awareness in our home. And every Monday night, we would get together and prepare a meal and then have a guest over. And it created this culture of hospitality. It was, it was counterformational for us. You know, in an age where, you know, single people are tempted to just kind of live with themselves in mind, we were, we were trying to cultivate how do we form habits of grace in our lives to teach us to live for others. There's so much I could say here but I've got to move on to my last point here, which is telling God's story. So we've talked about knowing God's covenantal love, practicing God's ways. But last, telling God's story. Look at verse 20. It says, when your son comes to you in times that are to come, and he says, what's the meaning of all this, right? What's the meaning of the way that you live? What's the meaning of all these statutes, of all these laws, of all these rhythms that we have in our household, Right? What, what, what's, why do we do this? And then, and, then, and then here's the message. It says, then you will say to your son, don't you see what God has done for us? We were slaves. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders. We're doing this to remember the, the signs and the, the wonders of God. Great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh. We're doing this to remember that God is powerful. And he brought us out from there that, that he might bring us into this good land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, right? To remember him, to fear the Lord our God for our good, that he might preserve us alive as we are to these days. So don't you see, when we, when we create these 
habits of grace in our lives, when we, create, when we cultivate these things in our lives, what we're really doing, the law of the Lord, you can say it this way, and it, this is very important for you to understand, it, it tells the truth about God. The way that we order our lives, we're, we're telling something, in every little part of our life, we're telling some truth or anti-truth about God. I mean, getting back to the beginning of the text, this, this very famous passage, Verse six, you know, these words shall be on your heart and then teach them diligently. Talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, right? Every little part of your life, bind them as a sign on your hands, frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorpost and your gates. You see what God has in mind here? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were at the uh, Jewish synagogue and I was in Rabbi Rosenthal's office. He's a friend of mine and he, I was sitting in his office overviewing the, my sermon that I was about to preach to you guys and he walked in and he was kind of startled, but he was, he was there and he was teaching the, for the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah and he had, and he was wearing a tefillim. Have you ever seen this? I got a, it's this little box uh, uh, that, that Jewish people wear on their forehead. And that's, that's they're trying to obey this. <laughs> and it's actually a little box that has inside of it a little scroll of the Hebrew scriptures. Well, <laughs> that's not what this text is about, okay? With all due respect to Rabbi Rosenthal, right? And, and your Jewish friends. That, that's not what this is saying. <laughs> it's not saying like, obey this by putting little scrolls between your eyes. No, it's saying, it's saying in every part of you and <laughs> everything that you see and everything you do and every part of your home and in the way that you're ordering your lives, live according to, love God's word, live according to God's word so that your life will tell the truth about God. And I guess that's my question is, what, what does your life tell about God? I mean, this begins with our health. I mean, how you eat matters, how you exercise, how you take care of yourself, how much you drink. Are you telling the truth about God with your body, with your life, with the temple that God's given you? Again, your time, your time really matters. I mean, what story does your calendar tell? Does it tell anything of God? Does it tell the truth about God? Does, does, Does your calendar say covenant child of God? Is that, is that the story that you're telling with your time? Does, it still the, does, it, does your calendar tell the story of a love of worship, a love of God's people, a love of God's calling in your life? You know, I wanna, I wanna say something, and I don't say this as a, uh, as a knock against kids' activities. I love kids' activities. The D's family, we have a lot of activities. So I love kids' activities. So I don't say this. To, I don't say this is a negative thing. This is a positive thing, right? But you know, I'll talk to parents and I'll and they'll say, um, "Man, we don't have time for family devotion," <laughs> or "Man, we don't have time to get our kids to the camp or to the student ministry thing or whatever it is." Gosh, that takes a lot of time. And you know, listen, guys. Look, I know how much time you guys spend doing other stuff, right? <laughs> I know how much time and energy y'all spend going to tournaments and making sure your kid can be a part of the reading bowl and you know doing whatever else it is. And I'm not saying that's bad. Okay, this is not a negative thing. I'm just saying a positive thing. Here's the thing. I know you can do it, right? I know you can do it. You've proven yourself. You, you have proven yourself to be able to spend time toward kid things. Right? But, but are, is the way that you're organizing the time of your family telling truth about God and telling truth about who you are as a covenant people of God? 
Or, or have you been formed by another message, right? Are you being formed by this story? Do, do, does your household need, I mean, sometimes like, sometimes households need to take a break from stuff just to have a counterformation method in your home. Your life tells a story. What is it telling of God? What you watch in your home, what you read, how you talk, how you treat people, how you welcome people in your home. All of this is telling a story about God. You know, Friday night, you know, here's David Bailey. Well, he's not back there now, but David runs all our tech stuff. I'm sure he's running around solving a problem. The Dees family, we went and had dinner with the Baileys, and we loved it. We had a great time with them. But here's what I was most impressed with. We're, we're at their house. They have an awesome house. And here's the thing that was most impressive to me is that they talked to us a good bit of the night about their neighbors. And I was like, man, they actually understand themselves to be ambassadors to this neighborhood. And they said, well, here's this neighbor. We've been praying for them. They don't know the Lord. Here's this neighbor. We had a great conversation with them. They, 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 had this, uh, they had this understanding that they're not just accidentally in a neighborhood. And it was formational. It, it told the truth about God. It, it was formational to their kids. It was formational to us. <laughs> you know, and I'm the pastor of the church. I was like, man, these guys are living on mission for the Lord. How you use your money tells a story about God. Again, is God the center of your wealth? Does it tell the story that you're in covenant with God, that you are a part of the covenant people of God, loving God with all your whole, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How you live, how we organize ourselves. This is why the law of the Lord is important. And first of all, it shapes our loves, but, but secondly, as we live by God's order, we, our lives tell a story. It's telling the story of, of God, or it's not. And you know, as Christians, as we live into these stories, we, we have a different story. We, we are part of this cross-shaped story. We understand this story that when we had nothing to offer to God, no righteousness to offer. We were dead in our sins. We, we are a part of a story where God, the God of the universe, has all authority and all wisdom and all might left heaven above to come and give himself for us, to sacrifice for us. And so it's, it's not hard for us as Christians to give to people that can't give anything back to us, to serve people without expecting anything in return, it's not hard for us as Christians to forgive people because, again, that's our whole story, that we were, we were without hope and God forgave us in Christ. You see, we have a cross-shaped story that we tell over and over. Christians are people that believe in the freedom of the cross, that, that in the cross we have nothing to prove. We've been made righteous by God. Our sin has been forgiven. The righteous record of Jesus has been applied to us. And so we can live like that. We can live with freedom and poise. Right? Not always having to prove ourselves, but actually seeking to, to give ourselves for the sake of others. Christians are people who believe in the resurrection, that we have hope even in the face of death. And so of course we're people who mourn, but we're not people who mourn without hope. We're people who can face any sorrow and any tragedy in this world with great hope knowing that God will make all things new and right. And the reason that you know, worship is so important and the reason that Bibles, the reason all these things are important is it's so important for us to rehearse this gospel all the time so that it will shape our lives. 
and so that our lives will tell its story. In a few minutes, we're going to close our service with baptism. And I love baptism because it tells a story. It tells a story. I mean, why do we do the baptism? I always say, you know, baptism is the weirdest thing that Christians do. Why, when you become a Christian, does one guy dunk the other guy in the water? Well, it tells a story that we were dead. You know, water in, in the Bible is synonymous with death. We were dead. We should have died. But God in his mercy has called us out of death. He's called us into a new life. And that's why I love celebrating baptism. We're celebrating with these people who are about to be baptized. But we're also remembering our own baptism. And more than remembering our own baptism, we're remembering what baptism points to, what, what God has done in our lives. The, 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 the true baptism, that God has rescued us from the death that we deserved. And he's called us to life. May, may, may these things, may this gospel shape us. May we order our lives better. Let's rehearse this together as we celebrate baptism, as we sing, and as we scatter. Let's pray. Father, uh, we live in, in a time and an age when <laughs> there is a, there's a lot of other stories out there. And we're not unique in this. The people of Israel lived in the same thing. There was gods around them. There were stories around them. You said, don't go after them. Love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Obey these statutes. Order your household in such a way that, that God and his word would be at the very center of it, Lord. And so I just pray that for us right now that our lives would be ordered, our homes would be ordered, that they'd be cultivated, whether we're in college, living with a couple roommates in a dorm somewhere, whether we got a house full of kids that you've entrusted into our care to cultivate toward the things of God, whether we're grandparents, whether we're lifelong single folks, I pray that we would be a people that, that cultivate our lives in such a way that this covenant that you've called us to in Christ would be so fresh on our hearts. It would be the story that we live by, that these habits of grace would reinforce who we are as a covenant people. And that every little facet of our lives, from time to money, and to speech would, would tell the right story of who God is. The gospel would, would be what frames us and the gospel would, would be the message that our whole life speaks. Or do this work, I pray. And Father, I do pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their savior, that they haven't heard his voice. I pray that even right now they would hear this word, that Father, you and your love have called them in Christ to be your son, to be your daughter. And as they, as they look to you in faith, as they look to you and believe in you and believe that in Jesus, he has lived their righteousness. He has, he has achieved for them a perfect record of righteousness for you, that he and his cross has died their death. There is hope of life in the resurrection. Lord, I hope that, that, that those words would implant in their hearts, would make sense to them today. Your lives will be changed, Lord. Do this 
in the, in the hearts of people here. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.